You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. First, we will be out of the EU, free to chart our own course as a sovereign nation, taking back control of our money, our laws, our borders and our trade. We are ready to move to the next phase in our relationship. We want our future relationship to be as close as possible in full respect of our principles. We don't yet know what sort of a Brexit we'll get. We don't yet know whether it's going to be a roaring success or a horrible failure. And five years down the line, when we next have a general election, those issues are then possibly going to come back. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, we had a bit of a dramatic political moment today in Scotland. Yeah, it's not often that the Scottish sun brings us the most interesting story of the day, but it really was explosive, wasn't it? Uh, Topping the political agenda, Scotland's finance minister, Derek Mackay, resigning just hours before he's due to represent the nation's budget. Uh, This follows allegations in the Scottish press that the 42-year-old sent hundreds of online messages to a 16-year-old schoolboy. He had been tipped as a possible successor to Nicola Sturgeon as first minister, so big potential career ambitions. Instead, he handed in his resignation. Indeed, he did put out a statement. He said, I take full responsibility for my actions. I have behaved foolishly and I'm truly sorry. Now, the interesting thing is, this is a man who was seen, as we said, as a potential successor to Nicola Sturgeon. He's now out of the political arena, at least for the moment. Uh, Indeed, the budget is actually going to be delivered, I think, by the uh, the public finance minister, Kate Forbes. I mean, we're talking about a reasonably large £43 billion budget here. So it's a key moment, a rather interesting one, with a lot of implications, because uh, people have got used to dealing with Mr Mackay and the way he, he obviously handles the business agenda in Scotland. And now they've got to get used to, well, who knows? But to discuss some of that, joining us live, I'm very pleased to say, uh, from Glasgow, is Charandeep Singh, who's Deputy Chief Executive of the Scottish Chambers of Commerce. Charandeep, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, sir. Uh, First of all, I mean, obviously, we're not going to talk about the details about what happened, but a bit of a shock having the person that you'd got used to to dealing with disappearing like this. Yes, absolutely. Um, of course, we uh, were, were always uh, in, in tune with uh, dealing with uh, Mr. Mackay and, and his office. But of course, um, they do say that a day is uh, uh, never a long time in politics and, and things do change. Um, but as we understand it, Minister Kate Forbes will be delivering today's budget statement. Um, and we have a very good working relationship with Minister Kate Forbes and in dealing with business issues and concerns. And then, Charandeep, the other issue is around timing, given the way that the UK, the Westminster budget, got pushed back and back and back because of Brexit. Uh, it's now sat on the same day, I believe, that Scottish councils have to make their funding decisions, and that leaves uh, Scotland flying blind uh, to a large extent in terms of its budget. How is that going to affect things? 
Well, of course, that will affect how businesses can plan and how councils will be able to plan. And given the high level of uncertainty that businesses and others have had to deal with over a number of years, um, certainly since 2016, um, uncertainty is almost the new normal now. Um, so we will look forward to today's budget being delivered uh, to give some certainty to businesses and others and look forward forward to um, Stadio Javid delivering his budget as well. Indeed, because, Charity, obviously there's a distinction between things that are devolved and things that are not. Uh, it's quite a big budget, £43 billion, that the, the Scottish Government delivers. What do you look to them for? What do you expect from them? What do you want from them? Well, we want, of course, uh, as uh, businesses, one, we, we do want certainty, but we also want a clear signal from the Scottish Government and, uh, after that, the UK Government, uh, that there's a clear signal to invest uh, in business uh, and to reduce the cost uh, of doing business in Scotland and the rest of the UK. So today we will be looking for Minister Kate Forbes to provide that stability, but specifically on key things that businesses have been asking for. So from a Scottish Government perspective, we do want increased investment in transport and infrastructure. That includes investing uh, in the Highland Main Line uh, up north in Scotland, but also looking at new projects such as the Glasgow Metro Tram. Uh, and if you look beyond uh, into March, when we're looking at Sajid Javid, uh, we will be looking to him to ensure that tariffs, for example, on important Scottish exports like whisky, um, are not uh, negatively impacting uh, on that important export market. And what about looking ahead to Brexit? We've, of course, got another cliff edge at the end of the year. It's something businesses are almost becoming used to now. We've had so many uh, in the lead up to the to the official exit from the EU. What are your members telling you about uh, their the preparations for those? They must be getting pretty expensive, I can imagine. Yes, well, preparations for Brexit. We have had numerous deadlines and exits, uh, particularly last year. Uh, and that, that came at a huge cost for Scottish businesses. Um, but we are looking ahead now to see what the new opportunities will be. Uh, and we are working and we want to work more with the UK government to make sure that businesses is at that table, ensuring that future trade deals and trading arrangements and agreements suit the needs of the Scottish economy. Um, so we are being optimistic, uh, but also being realistic at the same time. And we want the UK government to understand that optimism is important, but we also need to be realistic on the impacts that these decisions are having on the day-to-day operations of businesses. Now, Charlie, I mean, we're used to, perhaps it's part of our badness in this, that we, we tend to be rather London centric. We, we look uh, at what's happening with Brexit and everything else, of course, from that angle, to some extent where we are in the city, from the financial services angle. But take us into what the different concerns are of Scottish business. I mean, you, one can, I suppose, talk about fishing, very small now, of course, but the, the Scotch whisky industry, that's been involved in concerns about tariffs recently. Give us a picture of some of the issues that are peculiar to Scotland in all this. Yeah, I would absolutely say that, you know, Scotland has a proud history of exporting uh, brilliant products and services across the world. So we want to make sure that we are are, are not uh, negatively damaged as a result of any new uh, trading arrangements with other countries or the EU um, or with whatever country that we end up working with. We want to make sure um, that our export products uh, are still attractive to, um, to our international allies and customers. Equally, other issues that are very important to Scottish businesses and have been for some time uh, is around the ability to attract talent from around the world. So migration is exceptionally important to Scottish businesses, both as a mechanism to plug uh, what is a growing skills challenge in Scotland, but also to make sure that our sectors, which are international uh, in in their DNA, uh, have the ability to to attract talent from around the world. So migration is going to be a big one. uh, And we will be working with the UK government around how we devise an immigration policy that works for Scottish business. 
And uh, I mean, we were speaking to the SNP yesterday. Clearly, they uh, were talking about independence, their campaign for that. What are your members telling you about any desires or otherwise for it? And has that changed since 2014, since Brexit as well? Because some would argue that there's been a paradigm shift after that vote to leave the European Union. Of course, I mean, it'll be up to the Scottish electorate uh, to decide whether there is a future referendum of, of, of any sort. Um, and we will leave that decision to the Scottish electorate. But of course, our members, regardless of whether there is a, another referendum or not, the issues will be the same. And I think that's a key message that our politicians need to understand, that whether there is another referendum or not, um, the issues that businesses are being faced with will remain the same. Um, so making sure that we're looking at those challenges and providing solutions now for the powers that we've got uh, is, is what our members are looking for. Now, Charity, what about the rules and regulations, which is what's at the centre of the whole Brexit debate in a way? Uh, Boris Johnson's government definitely saying we're not going to abide by necessarily uh, EU regulations and rules and standards. We have our own. I mean, is that going to make problems for your members particularly? Because in, in, in particular, as I suppose food being one of them, that kind of thing is absolutely crucial as far as exports are concerned. It is absolutely crucial. We have raised concerns uh, around um, the the plans uh, to diverge from EU standards and regulations, uh, and we've said that um, consistently for a number uh, for a number of years. Um, so concerns uh, do exist around further divergence uh, on standards, um, and ultimately, our view is is quite clear that you know if these new plans that that, that may be put in place will add further costs to businesses, um, then we would not be in favour of that because businesses already have so many challenges to to deal with. Um, so where uh, parity is appropriate and maintains our competitive edge, then we would like to see that maintained. Um, and, and more widely, when that's not possible, what sort of standards are you calling for? Um, so the standards, for example, around how we uh, are able to package and label our products when we're importing or exporting food and drink, that's exceptionally important. Uh, the food and drink industry is so important to Scotland's economy, not just from an economic factor, but also uh, our cultural place in the world as well. So we would like to see the food and drink uh, standards maintained. Now, you mentioned immigration issues earlier, and it is actually a key thing, and you met it particularly key, of course, in the food industry uh, and, and harvesting and all these kind of things. Do you want to see uh, effectively the same policy as before? We're going to be an end to free movement. What are the kind of rules and regulations that would be best for your members? Well, business has consistently called for a flexible immigration policy that suits the economic needs of Scotland. And in particular, we, we have additional challenges in that our sectors uh, do require such a diverse uh, style of labour. Uh, we require many highly skilled workers in our key sectors, such as the science sector, the research fields in our university sector. But we do also require manual labour uh, skilled workers as well. But of course, in addition to that, um, we also have a, a, a double-edged sword because we have a population and demographic challenge as well. So the immigration policies for the UK need to reflect that, not just for Scotland, but for the rest of the UK as well. So we would expect the UK government to understand those demographic challenges, but also the economic opportunity that a flexible immigration policy uh, could provide. Uh, and what about for services in particular? Yes, services in particular is very important. Uh, Scotland is world-renowned for its uh, financial and services sector, and we have many members that, that are world leaders in, in, in the field. Um, and this is an important sector because it's international at its heart. 
So we absolutely need the ability to be able to recruit uh, highly skilled international uh, senior executives into Scotland and be able to travel back and forth uh, from various markets. So we would expect to see that that element uh, is not just maintained, but actually improved and enhanced to make it easier for companies in these sectors to be able to recruit and attract that talent. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. And we've got to start with the Lords and some unlikely, perhaps, new entrants. Boris Johnson nominating two men who were kicked out of the Tory party to join the House of Lords. This is according to the BBC. So we've got Ken Clark and Philip Hammond, two former chancellors, of course, who had the Conservative whip withdrawn. They attempted to block no deal. They were part of that crew, uh, stood down as MPs, and now they are being nominated to join the House of Lords. Um, and this is all according to Laura Koonsberg over at the BBC. Uh, coming as a surprise to some, given the way that they ended things after two uh, long careers with the Conservative Party. Well, the Lords has become a bit of an issue, actually, in the first few weeks of this government, not least the fact that uh, John Burko, former Speaker has been nominated. He's been nominated by the Labour Party, and he's a Tory. So I, it's a very interesting line all round, and uh, I think there'll be more fighting there before it's uh, it's up. Now, here's an interesting piece from the FT this morning. How the Brexit deal can be done by Chris Giles. A combination of hard words and fudged reality, he says, will be the key to the negotiations. Boris Johnson will strike a comprehensive free trade agreement with the EU this year, and the deal will be better than any other politically feasible option. This is a bold and perhaps reckless prediction, he says. Coming in the week, the UK Prime Minister wrapped himself in the Union flag, coined a new euphemism for no deal, Australia, and set out a vision designed to irritate Brussels and appeal to nationalist British sentiments. But the start of a new negotiation is the time to overlook the crass rule Britannia symbolism, ignore what Mr Johnson sounded like he was promising, and instead, Chris Giles says, read what he actually said. Well, there's a view you don't hear very often in some circles. Uh, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how things play out and whether that really does come to pass. But uh, we've also got to talk about the Labour leadership contest, which uh, I saw Sienna Rogers of Labour List saying was uh, further away than we are from the 2019 election. So still a long way to go. Uh, but Labour should invite council leaders to attend its shadow cabinet. This is the line from Lisa Nandy, one of the contenders. Uh, she's hoping to replace Jeremy Corbyn, of course. And she said that she'd give the party's grassroots a significant boost. She also suggested a change in policies on local government. Of course, a big focus uh, for a long time now has been towns and their their role. And that's really something we saw play out in the election uh, with that swathe changing up in the north and in the Midlands. Uh, and she argues that that approach to local councillors would strengthen Labour's work in regaining the scores of red wall seats that were lost. Uh, they lost uh, 59 constituencies in their worst defeat since 35, of course. And finally, well, there's always something new from the Johnson family. Oh, this is great. Said. Boris Johnson's father has been speaking to the Chinese ambassador in London about the coronavirus. 
coronavirus. Now, uh, Boris Johnson's dad, Stanley Johnson, has become an unlikely diplomat. Uh, Liu Xiaoming, the ambassador, told Stanley Johnson about concerns that the prime minister had not offered China a personal message of support about the coronavirus outbreak. Johnson Sr. then emailed Environment Minister Lack Zach Goldsmith, Lord, I was going to say, Lord, speaking of issues to do with the House of Lords, from his personal email address, but accidentally copied in a member of the BBC staff. See, I can relate to this. As somebody with a uh, a, a doting father, I can imagine if I were Prime Minister, he would want to help in whatever way he could. Um, I also wouldn't put it in past him to copy in a member of BBC staff. Mm. Right. Anyway, let's, let's go on to another big story that's about the government's growth targets, which are being called into question. Now, we've heard from Sajid Javid. He's very ambitious. Uh, he wants to go back to what had been, I suppose, the kind of uh, the basis for the um, for the understanding of, of growth in the UK post-war uh, and thinking it would be there. But the National Institute of Economic and Social Research says the chances target of almost 3% GDP growth is quite unrealistic. And the proposed policies are unlikely to offset the impact of Brexit and achieve that. For more, we've been joined, I'm very pleased to say, here in the studio by NISA Director Jagjit Chara. Welcome to the programme, Jagjit. Um, Glad to be here. Okay, why is Javid off the mark? Well, if if we look at the post-war performance, as you said, um, in the last part of the 20th century, yes, it was nudging towards two and a half, two and three quarters percent. But in the most recent decade, the 2010s, the average growth rate was 1.8 percent which was, of course, terribly disappointing because it hadn't been as bad as that since, on average, the first decade of the 21st century. Exactly the same rate of growth was achieved on average in the first two decades of the 20th century, 21st century. The difference between the first decade and the second is that after the financial crisis, 2008 and 9, that growth has all been about mo- using more and more capacity in the economy, more and more labour being employed, and therefore producing more goods on the basis of higher inputs. What we need for increased prosperity is more productivity, and that's where for every hour that we work, we produce more widgets, and that leads to greater prosperity. But productivity has stalled. It's barely above the level it was in 2009, and we know from a tremendous amount of research in economics that increasing productivity isn't terribly easy. If we could, we'd all want to have it immediately. It takes time, it takes thinking, detailed plans, investment in infrastructure, in education, in transport, rolling out broadband, further education in particular, which will all have a long-run impact on the economy, but not in the short run. And parliamentary terms of five years, chancellors whose terms are often much shorter than that, may find it very hard to bring about that level of growth that is consistent with a long run that implies both an increase in inputs and an increase in productivity. It just doesn't seem very feasible. But but it looks like, in the long term at least, this is the goal of the government. Certainly Mm. Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings Mm. looking for this uh, technological revolution, and you Mm. see the decisions they made with Huawei that are sort of Mm. a short-term loss for what they hope is a long-term gain. Is that still worth it then to get there? Do you think that is what is going to create or bring about this productivity boost? I think there are two types of issues here. One is that if we hurry to try and bring about a productivity boost. We may end up laying down large amounts of public investment. And to be clear, there is a shortage of investment, both business investment, foreign direct investment, R&D, that could be improved, particularly in the regions outside of London and the southeast. 
But again, if we try to do it very quickly, it won't necessarily go to the places that we want in the most efficient manner. It takes time, if you're going to build hospitals, if you're going to build schools, to populate them with trained nurses and trained teachers. So doing things quickly may lead to a particular problem of inefficient allocation of that public resources. But also, because the economy is currently at full capacity, there's not a lot of productivity slack, that may lead to an increase in demand, which the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England may have feel it has to offset with higher interest rates, which would, of course, stymie the objective of that, of that looser fiscal policy in the first few years. But the Bank of England, in fact, their estimate of, of where we mm. might be with growth is rather, rather more pessimistic even than your own. Well, obviously, these kinds of estimates are very hard to make. We, 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 almost the history of the post-war history of the UK economy is a continuous set of mistakes about capacity. We know that from the 70s, we know that from the Lawson boom, and we also know that from the Brown boom of the noughties. And, and in fact, one might also want to rewrite the period of the last 12 years as having been consistently over-optimistic about capacity. So there is a chance it may return. But the things that will return, uh, the things that are necessary for that to return, are all those bits of investment that I've described that take time to work out where they should go, that take time to be laid down, and time to have their consequences. So the problem is... We might have politicians who make promises about increasing activity and well-being, but the impact will be over the very long run, which may may create more disenchantment with outcomes in the short run. And that's the thing that worries us very much at the Institute. We prefer a little bit more honesty about what's possible. So, Abby, that's certainly something we've heard in other fields as well. So that's your reasoning Mm. uh, for that. So 2.8%, perhaps unrealistic. What do you think is more achievable? Well, what we've seen... Um, in, in, since the referendum is uh, both uncertainty and also the sense in which greater friction in trade is likely to reduce activity uh, in the medium to long run. So growth has hovered around 1% to 1.5%, which is below this long run average we've talked about. And we see something very similar over the next few years. It's not, it's not a disaster. It's just a slow puncture in the economy. And we've also described it variously as a, as a set of doldrums, really. you know, Nobody really knows... Uh, or nobody really believes that the economy is going to take off, so people are stalling and waiting to see what's going to happen. But Jack, aren't you one of Boris Johnson's doomsters and gloomsters and all those? I mean, you're taking a very pessimistic view. I mean, no, no. If, if I were taking the other side, yeah. you'd say, you know, we're in a historically low interest rate environment, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. There are, is a commitment to building infrastructure on a rate that really we haven't seen possibly since the war, if you believe mm. some of the things the government says. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe business as usual isn't what's happening, and therefore the, the Chancellor perhaps is being more realistic than you think? I, I don't think it's um, my job to really think in terms of, of, of gloom or doom or, or be overly pos- uh, pessimistic or optimistic. We have to just look at the uh, situation in the economy and, and try to understand the mechanisms that are going on. So you mentioned low interest rates. Yes, you're right. Low interest rates are historically uh, a level that none of us would have anticipated a, a decade or more ago. And then the question is, if that's the case, why isn't investment booming? Why are firms not laying down large amounts of investment? Why aren't people investing in human capital and physical and intangible capital in a way that is creating the boom the economy wants? Well, there must be some other forces at work there. A lack of confidence in the future, an inability to stoke up firms that are highly productive in the way that we would want. There are some serious problems. And that also does mean thinking about how we allocate some of these necessary resources to the region. But that also goes back to my original problem. It's hard to find these things and uncover them and provide the incentives to do those things. So my my fundamental picture is one of optimism. But my point is it's going to take time. And that means going away, thinking about it very carefully. In fact, in our own estimates, 
We think that if the government were to increase public investment by, by around 1%, that would increase capacity by about half a percent. And if it did it persistently over a number of years, that would help capacity in the economy. But the rub, it's going to take 10 years or more for that to happen. And that's what we need, just to say, look, be patient, be persistent and be careful. And presumably you're roiled by uncertainty, not just by Brexit, mm. but by what you've got to put in place of it. I'm thinking yeah. about all this radical policy around farming, climate, immigration, all the rest of it. How do you factor that in? Well, so what you've got to take a view on is that there was an original level of uncertainty about how we'll leave or when we'll leave the European Union. And now the uncertainty is about the whole range of trade agreements. You talked earlier on, and, and you're right, that I think the government will, cert- will not certainly, but probably get a good, a reasonable deal with the European Union by the end of this year. But we think that can only cover goods. It can't cover the panoply of services in the economy. That means only 20% of the economy mm. is covered by that. The rest of it will happen, but it will take time. And similarly with deals with the Anglosphere. Yes, there's a lot of goodwill. Everybody wants to make a deal with, with the UK. It's an important, pivotal country in the world with very good relationships. But again, these are complicated arrangements in which we don't have a lot of experience. It will take time. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.